As we continue in worship, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 31. In the Gospel of Luke, and perhaps in the Gospels, in fact, all of totality, there are no more two unusual parables than in this chapter of Chapter uh, chapter 16 of the Gospel. We've already seen uh, last week the parable of the unrighteous steward. This week we're going to take a look at the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. So it's kind of just interesting uh, parable and very instructive for us. Anyways, uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 1431. I'll read the text within the sermon. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, please take your word and cause it to go forth to accomplish that which you have purposed to do in the lives of those who hear. Give us ears to hear. Give us a, a heart that will respond in obedience. Give us a humility that would listen to what you might be saying to us and that you would cause us to honestly examine our lives to see if there are areas in which our lives that do not align with the image of Christ. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his words. And Father, we pray especially that through the words of Jesus, that the gospel of the kingdom of God might be proclaimed today. And that if there's anyone listening and joining with us this morning who does not yet know Jesus, or maybe has never known Jesus, though they've been religious, that today would be a day of salvation for them. Father, do the mighty work in our hearts through the power of your Spirit. Glorify yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. In the epistle of James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus writes that faith without works is dead. That if we say that we believe in Jesus Christ but do not in turn follow Jesus' teachings, then we would do well to examine our faith to see if it is actually real or not. In James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17, James writes these words, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. You see, how we treat the poor, how we treat the needy and the impoverished among us, is a reflection of our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why we might not do so is because in our hearts, we are not lovers of God, but lovers of money. Yes, we're, we're not hoarders like the rich fool. We're not squanderers like the prodigal son. And certainly we're not cheaters who gain their wealth unscrupulously like the tax collectors. But we can be devout penny pinchers who are lovers of money. And it will show in how we treat our needy brothers and sisters. In fact, the needy people of our world. 
Today's passage that we're going to look at challenges us to examine whether we ourselves are lovers of money. Particularly in the sense that it is reflected in how we relate and how we treat others in need. As we learned last time, we cannot serve God and wealth. We cannot serve God and money. You can't be a lover of God and also a lover of money. If you're a lover of money, then it will show in how you don't love Him. And it will show in how you don't love others. But if you're a lover of God, then it will show in how you will use your wealth to serve God and to serve your neighbors and thus love them. In our text, Jesus responds to the Pharisees who were scoffing at His teaching. And in so doing, He lays bare their own love of money. The passage breaks down for us into two, uh, into actually uh, two parts, uh, technically. A series of three instructions directed to the Pharisees, followed by an, a bigger, longer illustration that is known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And it is challenging then to, kind of, to see the connection between Jesus' instructions, those three short instructions, and his longer illustration. But yet, when we look at this passage we see that the absence of any break indicates that they're all meant to be understood together as one text. And that's where we're going to to try to look at it as one text today. And uh, just as an outline for us, I'm going to take those three uh, instructions and the one illustration as four points. So we're going to look at, outline, four characteristics of lovers of money that Christians should beware. And we who are followers of Christ, we who, who, uh, who desire to walk in His ways, we should be very much aware when we that of a love of money in our own lives. And we don't want to be lovers of money, so we don't want to be watchful for these characteristics that may be in our own lives and that we can repent of and so that we might be more faithful followers of Jesus. All right, so let's, let's take a look. Point number one in verses 14 to 15 of this passage, we see that lovers of money are those who justify themselves. Lovers of money justify them. So they always have excuses. They always have a reason for why they don't treat others with, uh, with kindness and with love. Look at verse 14 and 15 with me of Luke 16. Now the Pharisees, uh, Luke's continue. now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Verse 14 sets up this uh, dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, uh, Luke tells us, had been listening to Jesus the whole time, even though he was directed his conversations to his disciples, but the Pharisees who hated him still followed around and listened to him because they were always looking for something to accuse him about. And when they heard Jesus teach the parable of the unrighteous steward and the importance of using one's resources to serve God and others, they were scoffing at him. They were, they were ridiculing him. The reason they were scoffing at him is because, Luke tells us, these Pharisees were lovers of money. Instead of following Jesus' command to make friends with money, these Pharisees were friends of money. However, what's interesting, because Luke tells us this, and it's, uh, uh, it's kind of a little bit surprising in, in the context, because in those days, the Pharisees were generally not wealthy religious leaders. It was the Sadducees 
who, having controlled the temple, were those who were the, were the wealthy ones. They were the aristocracy. In fact, Josephus, the historian, Jewish historian Josephus, tells us that the Pharisees had a simple standard of living, making no concession to luxury. So outwardly, the Pharisees were very frugal people. Uh, they were modest people in how they dressed. They weren't extravagant kind of people. They're people like probably you and me. But what we learn is that one can be religious and frugal and modest outwardly, revealing in, in how we use our money, but inwardly be lovers of money. Outwardly we can present one thing, but inwardly we can be a whole nother. And that's what the Pharisees were. I've, always, I've often said that we, as a Bible-teaching church, as the Bible church, are, are more uh, potentially to be like the Pharisees than the, than the Sadducees. We're more like those because of our desire to follow the Scriptures, that we, we can really make the details of Scripture so much that, that we just make up all these legalistic rules and, and traditions. We're more like the Pharisees than we'd like to admit. Jesus, knowing the truth, reproves these Pharisees in verse 15. The Pharisees had majored on keeping the law in verse 15, and used their traditions and interpretations of the law to justify their own love of money. And Jesus condemns them for this. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. You, you have your excuses and, and you've, you set these traditions so that you look good before men, but really, ultimately, you do not, you fail to look good before God. For example, in Mark chapter 7, verse 9 to 13, Jesus condemned the Pharisees and scribes for basically this practice of declaring things as korban, declaring things as dedicated to God. And which, when they did that, then it justified them so that they didn't, that they could then neglect their own family, their own mother, their own father. They would say, oh, these things are dedicated to God, so I can't use them to, uh, to, get, to use to help my needy parents. When ultimately, the money was still in their control. It made them look spiritual when they would declare their money as korban. But in reality, they just simply wanted to keep the money for themselves. They were lovers of money. All these outward traditions that the Pharisees kept were really done to be esteemed by men. It was done so that others would see that, that how spiritual, how religious they were. They prided themselves on keeping the traditions at the expense of the needs of others. Even in so many of the conversations they had, the traditions kept them from, from helping uh, people who are sick and people who are helpless from getting healed because they, were, they said, you, you can't, you got to keep the traditions. But God is the one who knows all hearts and He knows their hearts. And God is not fooled about them, though they, man may be. He sees into every heart, including our own. The things that the Pharisees esteemed, that is the keeping of their traditions, were in reality detestable to God. They were an abomination in the Old Testament uh, uh, word for this. Man, mankind, is good at making excuses, especially for making excuses for not serving their fellow men. And God knows that we are simply justifying ourselves to hide the fact that we are lovers of money, that we really just want to keep the money for ourselves. 
Lovers of money seek to justify themselves before men. That's point number one. Point number two is that lovers of money neglect the gospel. Lovers of money neglect the gospel. We see this in, in verses 16 to 17. Jesus moves on to a, a second related point. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. In these verses, Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for their neglect of the word of God. The Pharisees have prided themselves on being keepers of the law, and so therefore they built this elaborate system of traditions in order to keep uh, and make it help to so they could sh- keep protect them from keeping the law from violating the law, and it became a big time, <laughs> just a weight upon themselves and upon all Jewish people. It was big time legalism. Keep these traditions, boom, 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 and you're good with God. Break any of these traditions, and you're condemned before God. But Jesus says the law, it refers to the law and the prophets here. And these refer to the Old Testament books. And Jesus says in them, God promised his coming kingdom. This coming who would be ruled by his son. And then we see that in all the Old Testament prophets. We see in the Davidic covenant, um, as well as in many of the major prophets. But when John the Baptist began his ministry... The gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news that was promised to the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God began to be proclaimed, began to be preached. No longer was the message, the kingdom is coming, but the kingdom was now near. It was now near in the person of Jesus, the king. Not only was that Jesus's, John's message, but that was Jesus' ministry message as well. He went about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the good news, that is the gospel, is that the entrance into the kingdom of God is through repentance and faith in the messianic king, who is Jesus. Yet, despite the preaching of John and Jesus, people were forcing their own way into the kingdom, it says. They were making their own rules. They were making their own regulations for who would enter the kingdom. And the Pharisees were really good at it. Though they ignored the gospel that was preached, Jesus guaranteed that the promise of the Old Testament would be fulfilled. Jesus put it in more, in a much, in just much this quite beautiful language. He says, "It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of God's law to fail." In Hebrew, the difference between some letters was simply a small stroke. It was a, a, a tittle. It's called. But he says, not even a small stroke of God's law will fail. So the Pharisees were caught up in their greed that they justified themselves by all their traditions. And claiming to keep the law that made them sense and gave them, the, made, gave them this illusion that they were right before God. But sadly, they missed the whole point of the preaching of the Old Testament and the preaching of John and Jesus. They missed the gospel. They missed the good news that the kingdom that was promised that it was coming, the kingdom is here. And the way to enter the kingdom is not by keeping the laws and by keeping the traditions, but the entrance to the kingdom is through the king, through submitting to him and believing in him and trusting in him. 
this Jesus who was right before them. But they rather neglected the gospel. And when Jesus proclaimed it, they rejected it, and they rejected him. They refused to put their faith in him. They refused to repent and turn to him. And that's what happens when people get caught up in the love of money. They basically forget, or worse, they neglect the gospel. They simply neglect it. It's not really what's most important. It's the kind of people who come to church and say, well, why do you keep preaching about Jesus dying for our sins? Tell me about how I can live my life so I can be blessed. It's people who, and the epitome of this is our, the prosperity gospel movement all across America. That people come to Jesus because they want to be healthier, they want to be wealthy, they want to be rich, they want to be prosperous. But sometimes, oftentimes, people who follow Jesus are going to be called to live a life of poverty, of sacrifice, of suffering. But that's not popular. If you're a lover of money, you're not going to appreciate the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is a message that's really not for this life. Yes, it impacts this life, but it's really a message for those of the people of the age to come. Remember our last week's message. It's not about riches on earth that you're going to receive. It's about riches in heaven that you're going to receive. It's not about gaining more for oneself, but it's about denying oneself. Beware, for lovers of money neglect the gospel. And you can tell your heart, if your life, if your Christian life is more about how you live and how you can be blessed, and it's not about the gospel, it's not about proclaiming the gospel, not about uh, living in light of the gospel, then you may be loving something else. And it may be money. Let's move on. Jesus then moves on to a third uh, instruction that uh, in this text. And it teaches us that lovers of money neglect their spouses. Lovers of money neglect their spouses. Verse 18. Everyone who divorces a wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. This verse is probably the most challenging in the sense that it's not difficult to understand. It's just difficult to understand how it fits with this whole context. But the teaching itself on its own is, is quite clear. Jesus is teaching about divorce. In New Testament times, divorce was a greatly debated issue among the rabbis. And it was widely held that divorce was allowed, according to Deuteronomy 24. But interpretations of the grounds for divorce vary greatly. Some believe you could get divorced for any reason at all. Others believe that the only grounds was adultery. Jesus would affirm uh, this latter view elsewhere in, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, would add another exception of unbeliever abandonment uh, in his epistles. But here, Jesus authoritatively condemns divorce. That God hates divorce, just like Malachi. It's just it's simply saying that God hates divorce. It's not his plan, though in a sinful world, it's been allowed. Jesus condemns divorce from the standpoint of remarriage. That he says, he basically says, whoever divorced their spouse for any unbiblical reason, an unjust reason, and remarries, basically commits adultery. And if you, uh, if you marry someone who is divorced unbiblically, for with unbiblical reason, then you also commit adultery. 
relevant question is, why does Jesus say this here then? It's, it's pretty straightforward. He's saying that, you know, when you, uh, if divorce is on unbiblical reasons and you remarried, you're committing adultery. So, but what does this have to do with lovers being lovers of money? Various answers are suggested by the various scholars, and it's hard, you can't be completely dogmatic. But I believe that it's simply a reflection of one's love of money. Because the love of money, uh, Paul talks about in the, in the days, in the future days, there will be, people will be lovers of self and lovers of money. Lovers of self are those who, are, when you love money, you're really lovers of self. And that basically leads one to, when you're a lover of self, you, you neglect others in your life. You, ne- you love yourself more than you love others. And it will reveal itself in those how you treat others that are closest to you. And that is your spouses here. Probably, you've probably all known people who have become lovers of money. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes gambling is one of the more obvious ones. And that they're so in love with it that they're consumed by it that they, they end up neglecting their spouses. They, not that they divorce them, but that they, they, they burn through their, their, their family resources at the cost of their family. When, when people, and the Pharisees here were likely those who, as lovers, of, of money were also those who refl- it was reflected in how they treated their spouses. They were divorcing them uh, carelessly, uh, freely. What's more, by their own traditions, uh, they would have justified themselves as if, well, the, the, according to their traditions, that they were acting rightly. But once again, where the men might, they, it was a place where, according to the traditions, men might esteem them, but it was detestable before God. For God hates divorce. Jesus' statement simply challenges them to think again. Think again about how they're treating their spouses. About their, their, uh, their carelessness in divorcing them. Reflection is, goes hand in hand with being lovers of money, lovers of self. Jesus concludes with an illustration then uh, f- a, that expands this, uh, this, point far, this point further. That when you're a lover of money, you, it shows in how you, tr- how you neglect others in your life. And the th- fourth and final point is the, and the, the bulk of our text is that lovers of money neglect their neighbor. Lovers of money neglect their neighbor. Verses 19 through 31. Jesus tells what is known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's the only parable, interestingly, where Jesus uses actually a specific name for one of the characters in this parable. And in it, Jesus challenges the Pharisees to love their neighbors with the wealth that God has given them. The parable begins an introduction to the two characters that we find in the story, the rich man and the poor man. The poor man is named Lazarus. And first of all, we look at their earthly lives in verses 19 to 21. The earthly lives. Jesus tells the parable. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. There's a clear contrast between the rich man and the poor man. The rich man is clothed in, in fine clothes, the finest of linens. In fact, it tells that he was dressed in purple, a, a color of royalty, in fact. It was a royal color, so it was very expensive. 
The poor man, in contrast, is covered not with clothing, but with sores. The rich man lived in splendor every day, it says, while the poor man lived in squalor. The rich man had a lavish food daily. The poor man had a longing for food daily. He even longed for the crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. The mention here that the dogs were licking the poor man's sores meant that he was ceremonially unclean. Whereas the rich man's wealth would have interpreted that he was righteous and in right standing before God. You see, what man highly esteems is often what is detestable in the sight of God. Although the rich man goes unnamed, Jesus tells us that the poor man's name is Lazarus. It's shorthand for the name uh, Eliezer, which means my God is helper. Jesus wants us to know by revealing the name of Lazarus that uh, he wants us to know that Lazarus is one who looks to God for help, whereas the rich man does not need God. Lazarus won. Uh, what's more, Lazarus was here laid at the gate of the rich man. And every day, you can imagine the rich man, as he goes out his gate, he would have seen Lazarus. He would see him there probably begging for alms. But like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, he probably would have just walked around Lazarus. It doesn't record that he gave Lazarus any food, much less crumbs from his tables. He did not use his wealth to serve the Lord and his neighbor, a neighbor that was right there in front of him. In this contrast of lies, particularly the rich man who is not condemned really for his wealth, but is condemned because of his lack of the use of his wealth, for how he uses his wealth, it's reflected in their eternal lives in verse 22 to 23. Look at verse 22 and 23. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Time passes and the poor man died. Time passes and the rich man dies. Death is the great equalizer. But the rich, but there's, but that is... And from that point on, there's a continues a contrast in their lives, but it's a switched contrast. The poor man ends up in Abraham's bosom, Abraham being the father of the nation Israel, in whom God promised all the blessings upon the nation and upon all the families of the earth. The bosom indicating a place of intimate communion. So Lazarus basically in the place where he would have close fellowship with Abraham, presumably Abraham is with God. In other words, this Lazarus is in heaven with the father and with Abraham. But in contrast to the poor man, the rich man who died also ends up surprisingly in Hades. Hades is generally a term for the place of the death. But in several instances like this one here, it is a reference to what we call hell. It's the place where there is unending torment for the wicked. The role of these two men, you can see the, the, the contrast from the earthly lives to the eternal lives it is completely 180. It's totally flipped over. In earthly life, Lazarus was in torment and the rich man was in bliss. But in eternity, the rich man is in torment and it is Lazarus who is now experiencing bliss. In the parable, the rich man could see Lazarus from, from his place of torment. They could somehow see that the, there's a, there's a uh, uh, one another Though from far away, there's a, there's, some, there's a chasm there. 
what everyone expected is completely turned upside down here in, the, in this parable at the moment of death. We've already said that death is the great equalizer. Death is something that all of us face. Death is just. It's fair. It's what all of us deserve. It's all what all of us will experience. It doesn't, no one is spared. And upon death, everyone answers to God. What counts before God at that moment when we die is not what's in our wallets. It's not what's in our bank accounts, our 401ks, in the properties and possessions that we own. It's not in the the glamorous lives that we have lived on earth. It's in what's in our hearts is what counts before God. And we see we see that the contrast between the rich and the poor man and their hearts, particularly reflected, particularly the rich man, reflected in the vault versus the fall, in the rich man's pleas for mercy in verses 24 to 31, or pleas from eternity. First, as he pleads for eternity, from eternity, there he makes pleas for himself in verse 24 to 26. So seeing uh, the rich man sees Abraham and Lazarus in his bosom and is from far away, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool him off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. We see in this plea of the rich man for himself is that once again he's thinking of himself. He's still thinking about himself. He's not learned. It, it reveals much about his own attitude toward others like Lazarus. Notice first of all in this that we see that the rich man knows Lazarus' name. It's significant because he knows that that person, that stand, that poor man there, there in Abraham's wisdom is named Lazarus. He knows his name. He knows the poor man sitting in front of, that sits in front of his gate, but whom, to whom he never did anything for, to help. Notice also how even in Hades, the rich man still sees and looks upon Lazarus as someone who exists to serve him. He calls out to Father Abraham and asks him to basically send Lazarus to take some water to cool off his tongue. For the torment that he experiences in Hades involves flames that burn and continually burn him and cause his tongue to be dry. Have you ever wake up with a, just a dry tongue? Just kind of, and it's, it's just, it, that's already bad, but it's a, a tongue that's so dry that it's burning with thirst and quench, and it can never be, uh, in, a, in the sense that the fires are never quenched, and you're always just, just longing to be cooled by water. It is, that's what, that's what hell is like. He wants us to be quenched. He wants to have Abraham send Lazarus to serve him. How ironic. 
who when Lazarus was in need on earth, the rich man didn't help him. But now when the rich man is in need in eternity, he expects the Lazarus to come to help him. But in Hades, help is not coming. Abraham explains that there is a great chasm between them, that no one can traverse them, the the great chasm. Basically, the eternal destinies of both individuals in each location are fixed. You can't go from one place to the other in eternity. Once you're there, whether in heaven or in hell, it is your final destination for all of time. And this is a warning. It is bleak. It is sobering. But it is true. There are no second chances in eternity. Second chances are only in this life. And you still, while you live and breathe, have a chance to turn to Jesus Christ now and repent and put your faith in Him for salvation. Turn to Him if you have not before it is too late. We do not know if we will live tomorrow. We do not know what lies ahead of us. I know many of you are out there who are listening to us and listening to our live stream because you have family members and friends who, who basically loved you and then wanted you to, to listen in and hear the good news about Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you that the most important thing for you is you may not understand all that the Bible teaches, but understand this, that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins and that If you put your faith and trust in Him now, you will have forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life with Jesus in eternity. But you must do so now, not not when it's too late, not when you've died. Don't even wait for, oh, I'm going to do it right on my dying, dying breath or in my dying bed. You don't even know if you'll have that chance. Do so now if you are being drawn by the Lord. But the rich man is not done in his pleas. He hears what Abraham says, and he says, well, okay, he realizes it's too late for himself. But he then pleads, makes a plea for, for, his, for his family in verse 27 to 29. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to the place, this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And so the rich man still sees Lazarus as basically being a servant to be sent on his behalf. And he asked Abraham to send Lazarus to go warn his brothers so that his five brothers would not end up in Hades in torment like the rich man. But once again, Abraham's answer is no. And in this case, it's not because it's too late for the brothers. It's not because there is a, there's an in, intraversible chasm. It's not like it's not, they're hopeless. Rather, it's because his brothers already have enough to repent and believe. They have the warning, the, and he tells them that they have the words and warnings of Moses and the prophets. That is the Old Testament scriptures. It is enough, even just in the Old Testament alone, Genesis through Malachi, to show and reveal 
God's plan of salvation and His salvation through the promised Son of God, the King who would come. In fact, Jesus would show this because in, in later in Luke 24 and 25 with His disciples on the road to Emmaus, He would show them all the Old Testament scriptures and how they point to Him. The Old Testament is full of warnings and condemnations of sin. But the Old Testament is also full of calls to repentance and salvation through believing and trusting in, in the Lord's promises. Remember, it begins as early as even Abraham. God, to responding to God's promises, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Old Testament gives us more than enough. And it tells us not only how to be saved, but it tells us how to live. One example, uh, one relevant example are the instructions in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has, which we read earlier in our call to worship. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, how we treat others in this life is the necessary fruit of, the, of lives who worship and know God. And so the obvious question for each of us is then, how do you and I treat others in our lives? How do we treat others who are in need of justice, of equity, of fairness? How do we treat others in need of kindness? How do we treat others in need of God's help? The rich man doesn't accept Abraham's answer. And he asks for more. Verse 30. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So the rich man's answer basically is saying that, that he doesn't believe the scriptures are enough. That his brothers need more than just the scriptures. They need something supernatural. They need a sign. They need someone rising from the dead like Lazarus going rising from the dead. As Jesus already taught earlier, this evil generation looks for signs. But Abraham tells the rich man that the lack of signs and wonders is not the problem for why people don't repent. The reason, the problem for, and that causes people to not repent is simply because of their sinful rebellion against God. They don't want God. They don't want to listen to God. They don't want help from God. If they don't listen to the Old Testament scriptures, then they will not be persuaded, even if someone would rise from the dead. Of course, those of us who are reading the gospel, even those who read Luke's gospel, knows that Jesus is speaking of himself, that he would rise from the dead. And though he would rise from the dead, still many Israelites still do not believe in him, and still today do not believe in him. But yet God's word is enough for all to know God's offer of salvation through faith in Him. And 2,000 years have passed. We have, in addition to the Old Testament, we have the words of Jesus Christ. We have the words of the apostles. We have the New Testament as well. So doubly so, we have enough. If you're looking for signs before you believe in Jesus, you are barking up the wrong tree. You have more than enough in the Old and New Testament scriptures. 
for in them reveal God's will for our lives, God's plan of salvation to save us from the curse of sin. And in the New Testament, he shows how he brought it about in the sending of his son. In it, in this, in the particular New Testament, we, we tell them to know some of the greatest signs of all. You want signs? Just read your Bible. That the Son of God would become a man, would humble himself to take on the form of man, emptying himself, it says, where he would then die a cruel and unjust death for the sins of those who are rebelled against him. That is a sign. You want more than signs? The culminating sign is when that Son of God who was crucified and died in a, a terrible death for our, our sins was risen from the grave on the third day. Just showing that He has the power to justify those who would believe upon Him. That He has the power to give life to those who trust in Him. And the, really the question is, will you repent of your sin? And will you place your faith in Jesus and follow Him? That is the only right response. And we have more than enough as revealed in the Old and New Testament Scriptures. We don't need signs. The sign of Jesus Christ is enough. Well, We come to our conclusion. Talked about many things today. But let me just leave you with one, one picture. I think all of you, all of us have seen them. They stand on the corner with their sign. Hungry and homeless. Anything helps. Disabled vet, can you spare a dollar? I have a wife and three kids. Thank you. And God bless. Anything helps. And we usually see them as we're driving along or walking along. I don't know how you react, but maybe we ignore their glasses, their glances. Maybe there's all sorts of thoughts going in our heads. We think if they're if they're really hungry, they would get a job. They're really hungry. They would go to many, one of the many uh, soup kitchens, food pantries that are all across the city. They're probably addicted to drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's a scam. And perhaps all or none of the things that are going through our mind are true. But whether you give or don't give to the beggar on the corner is not so much the issue. But they're a reminder to us. It should remind us to examine how we treat others. Like Lazarus. Like the poor. Like the helpless. Like the needy. We who have been blessed with wealth and resources ought to consider how we use our resources to serve the needy. For when we do, it is a reflection of of our love for the Lord, of our worship of God. And if we, in our lives, and we examine our lives, if we are not helping the needy in some way, you can't help all the needy. But are you helping any needy? Are you helping any people who are, who are in need, who are helpless, that are in your life? 
If you're not, then perhaps it is a reflection of a love for money. And even perhaps a reflection of a lack of love for God. Let's prayerfully examine our own lives and consider what God is saying to each of us through His Word. And I'll leave you three questions for application, for reflection, maybe in your discussion groups throughout the week. Number one, how, for number one, most importantly, how have you responded to the gospel of God? Have you placed your faith in the Son of God who died for your sins? Or are you one who is neglecting the gospel? It's not important to you. Because what's more important to you is yourself or your money. Number two, how have you treated the ones closest to you? Your spouse or your children or your parents? Neglect of them may be a reflection that you are a lover of money, a lover of self. Thirdly, how have you treated the poor and needy in this church and in the world around us? And the neighbors that God brings into our lives. For how we treat them is a reflection of our love for God. God has given us wealth and resources as a blessing to enjoy, but also to use to serve Him and to serve others. Let us be faithful to do so. Let us be generous in doing so. You cannot take it with you. Let us use it to make friends. Friends who will be there in eternity, who will welcome us when it's our turn to be there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that always causes us to look at ourselves. Oh Lord, guard us from looking at anybody else, but help us to look at ourselves in light of your word. Help us look into our own hearts to see what we love. Do we love you most or do we love riches and wealth most? And if we need any indication, help us to examine how we treat others. For we know that how we treat others, whether they are our loved ones or whether they are simply strangers in need, reflect our love for you. Help us to be faithful, Lord, in these, ble- in these blessings and riches you granted us. Oh, Lord, many of us are just so richly blessed, and we give you thanks for it. Father, help us to share with those in need. Help us to see the Lazaruses in our lives. Instead of ignoring them, help let us serve them.
that through the through our service they might come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, that they might be in eternity with us. And Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself through your word that shapes and molds us. Build your church through your word this morning. Sanctify us, Lord. Burn off those sinful tendencies towards love of money. And help us to be pure and holy lovers of God. Help us to do so, Lord, by your strength that you provide in your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.